0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 200, The Culper Spy Ring. By the fall of 1778, it seemed clear that the British garrisons at New York City and Newport, Rhode Island, were going to remain where they were for the foreseeable future. The Continentals maintained armies nearby both British garrisons in case they ventured out for any reason. But the Continentals could not take either garrison while the British Navy controlled the waters around them. Washington had hoped that the arrival of the French fleet under Admiral de Stang would assist in the recapture of these cities. But, as I've discussed already, d'Estaing declined to attack at New York and ended a planned coordinated attack at Newport after the British fleet arrived, and a storm damaged both fleets. After that, D'Estaing went to Boston for repairs. In November of 1778, per his instructions from Versailles, D'Estaing took the French fleet down to the West Indies, where the winter was prime fighting season. As a result, Washington knew the standoff would remain in place for at least over the winter he had to wait for another opportunity to fight in coordination with the French Navy. To keep tabs on the British in New York, Washington realized he needed a better intelligence system so that he could respond to British raids or any military build-ups or redeployments. This was not Washington's first attempt at intelligence gathering. The Continentals had made attempts to deploy spies and build spy networks since the war began, Their lack of experience and such matters meant that they had trouble gathering the necessary intelligence and that agents, such as famously Captain Nathan Hale, ended up hanging from a tree. Washington had engaged Nathaniel Sackett to build up a civilian spy ring in and around New York City to provide intelligence on the British there. Sackett was a merchant who lived in Fishkill, more than 50 miles north of the city. As a young boy, though, Sackett had served an apprenticeship in the city, learning the merchant trade at his uncle's shop, and he had many contacts in and around the city. In the early years of the war, Sackett had served in the New York Provincial Congress's Committee for Detecting and Defeating Conspiracies, which tried to reveal British spies, collect intelligence, and out any loyalists trying to keep a low profile. As part of his work, Sackett had developed some experience in writing ciphers and using secret codes. His work on that committee, with James Dewar and John Jay, led them to recommend him to General Washington. In early 1777, Washington paid Sackett to develop a civilian network in and around the city. Sackett recruited a number of people, but never really got Washington the intelligence that he needed. After getting frustratingly little information about General Howe's decision to begin the Philadelphia campaign in the summer of 1777, Washington terminated Sackett that fall. Sackett returned to his real life's work as a merchant and continued to serve as a sutler for the Continental Army. Over the fall and winter, Washington's focus was not really on New York but on Philadelphia. New York intelligence became less of a priority. After the British abandoned Philadelphia and Washington moved his army back to northern New Jersey and New York, intelligence from New York City became more of a priority again in the spring of 1778. Now, rather than turning to another civilian for help, this time General Washington turned to his officers. He made General Charles Scott his new chief of intelligence. Scott had been commissioned as a brigadier in the spring of 1777 Since his appointment, General Scott's career seems to have been, to put it charitably, mixed. General Scott had served under General Adam Stephen at Germantown. His troops got out of position and ended up firing on another continental unit. Scott put the blame on General Stephen, who ended up getting kicked out of the army. Again, at the Battle of Monmouth, Scott precipitated a retreat that infuriated General Washington but once again got the blame put on his superior, General Charles Lee, who was also removed from command following a court-martial. Despite these incidents, Washington still had faith in General Scott and put him in a key position out in front of the Continental Army. Scott's brigade would deploy in Westchester, just north of the enemy lines. In addition to acting as a front line of defense for the Continental Army, Scott was assigned the task of collecting intelligence. Now, some of this would be as simple as sending out scouts or interrogating deserters or other prisoners. Other parts, though, did involve the use of civilian agents. It was under Scott's command that the Culper spy ring was first created. Scott, however, personally was not keen on the use of civilian agents, especially when he could not confirm their identity or how they got their information. He was concerned about the validity of their reports and often refrained from providing timely information to General Washington while he tried to confirm the intelligence through other means. Early in Scott's tenure as chief intelligence officer, Washington sent Scott several letters which were critical about the lack of good intelligence. It was during this time that the British surprised the Continentals with the Kingsbridge attacks and the Old Tappan raid as well as the massive foraging offensive into Bergen County that I discussed a couple of weeks ago. In that same episode I mentioned that a British spy, Anne Bates, had been identified, and when caught, she actually appealed directly to General Scott, fed him a lie, and got the general to write her a pass, allowing her to return to British lines. General Scott also sent at least three undercover scouts behind enemy lines in September, all of whom were captured and hanged. During this same period in late 1778, Scott was also having a bit of a fight with Washington about what to do with a large portion of his army that had enlistments expiring on December 1st. Scott wanted to let them return home for the winter so that they could be rested and be more inclined to rejoin the army in the spring. Washington wanted Scott to pressure them to remain in the field all winter. As a result, Scott was not particularly happy with his position and in October requested to resign. In addition to his problems, Scott was complaining about some sort of illness that had been affecting him for quite a while. Washington responded that only the Continental Congress could accept his resignation. Rather than go to Congress, Scott instead requested a furlough to return home to Virginia. In November, Washington granted Scott his requested furlough and turned over much of the reduced command to Colonel William Russell. Although Russell took over command of the front lines in the army, the takeover of the military intelligence aspect of Scott's work turned to Major Benjamin Talmadge. Major Talmadge was the son of Reverend Benjamin Talmage, a minister in Setucket on Long Island. After growing up on Long Island, Talmadge graduated from Yale College in 1773 and took a job as the superintendent of the Wethersfield High School in Connecticut. When the war began, Talmadge did not exactly rush off to enlist. In late 1776, one of his friends, John Chester, received a commission as colonel and offered Talmadge a commission as a lieutenant in the regiment that he was raising. Talmadge fought with distinction in the New York Campaign At one point, after being evacuated from Brooklyn in that famous night evacuation, Talmadge actually borrowed a ferry, went back to Brooklyn to recover the horse that he had left behind. He managed to find it and get aboard the boat just as British troops advanced to his position and began firing at him. In December of 1776, Talmadge received a promotion to captain in a dragoon regiment and returned to Connecticut to recruit a new company. He spent the winter there raising and training his company and returned to the main army in the spring, at that point receiving a promotion to Major and providing conspicuous service during the Philadelphia campaign. Part of Major Talmage's duty as a dragoon was to gather enemy intelligence, in part by just riding out toward the enemy lines and observing the enemy. Officers, of course, were encouraged to find intelligence by whatever means they could. In his memoirs, Talmadge recounts entering a tavern to meet a woman who had just been to British-occupied Philadelphia and wished to pass along some information. The tavern was close enough to enemy lines that they saw him enter the tavern in uniform. The British attempted to capture him, but Talmadge jumped on his horse with the woman and rode away, galloping for several miles while exchanging shots with his pursuers. After the British evacuation of Philadelphia, Talmadge found himself back near New York City under the command of General Scott. In his memoirs, Talmadge just kind of notes he opened a private correspondence with some persons in New York. Talmadge does not really talk about his espionage activities in his memoirs, but it was at the time, in the summer of 1778, that he began what would become known as the Culper Spying. Talmadge, of course, had quite a few friends from his time growing up on Setucket, Long Island. Many of these people were still living there behind enemy lines. One of the problems that Talmadge observed with earlier intelligence efforts was that a person crossing between the lines would be subject to scrutiny by the enemy, making the gathering of intelligence much more difficult. Talmadge realized that it would make sense to have one group of people actually gather the intelligence then pass it off to trusted couriers to get it where it needed to go. That way the spies could act in perfectly normal ways and not raise any suspicion when they observed British movements or spoke with British soldiers. Talmadge, as I said, had the advantage of being able to reach out to his boyhood friends, men who he knew he could trust. For one of his key recruits, Talmadge did not even need to sneak onto Long Island to make contact. Abraham Woodhull was currently being held in a Connecticut prison. Woodhull was the only son of Judge Richard Woodhull. Although Abraham Woodhull supported the Patriot cause, he did not enlist because his parents needed his help with the family cabbage farm. In 1778, Woodhull attempted to bring some of his crops to New York City to sell for British specie. A Patriot ship intercepted Woodhull in Long Island Sound, and arrested him for attempting to trade with the enemy. Talmadge met Woodhull in prison and agreed to get him released and return to Satucket so that he could begin gathering intelligence. Now, initially, Washington was rather skeptical of this plan. He saw Woodhull as a smuggler. It had been Washington's experience that smugglers liked to use espionage mostly as a cover for their smuggling activities, so they had a get-out-of-jail-free card if they ever got caught. Their primary focus was on making money, not providing intelligence. Talmadge, however, vouched for Woodhull and said he would be a good agent. At the same time, Woodhull was concerned for his own safety. He really did not want to end up hanging from a tree. Talmadge had to assure Woodhull that his identity would only be known to himself and a courier, someone who was also an old mutual friend. Even Washington himself would not know Woodhull's true identity. He gave Woodhull the code name Samuel Culper. Samuel was the name of Talmadge's father, and Culper was a shortened version of Culpeper, Virginia, where Washington had spent time as a young man. Since Woodhull lived in Setucket, miles from the city, he would develop agents who lived in New York to keep their eyes and ears open, make note of troop movements, and listen in on tavern conversations. Initially, Woodhull would take cabbages into the city for sale as a cover to make contact with his agents. In hopes of reducing the suspicion of pickets about a military-aged man who was traveling into the main British camp, Woodhull would take along an older woman with him on his trips into the city. Anna Strong lived on a nearby farm with her ten children. Her husband was a British prisoner, by some accounts aboard the prison ship Jersey. Woodhull and Strong would travel to New York to sell cabbages, collect the information, and then bring that information back to Setauket. After several trips, Woodhull got skittish about traveling into the city at all, And he recruited a courier named Austin Rowe to carry the messages between New York and Setucket. Once Woodhull had the intelligence, he needed another courier to bring the information from Long Island to the Continental Army in Connecticut. A man named Caleb Brewster took on that difficult role. Before the war, Brewster worked as a seaman, mostly aboard local ships in Long Island Sound that transported goods around the area. He had been a member of the Patriot Militia, and during the first year of the war, he played a prominent role in the militia and had signed an oath to resist British authority. So, when the British captured Long Island, that made Brewster a target. He fled his home in Setucket to become a war refugee in Connecticut. There, he helped other refugees transport their families and possessions from Long Island to Connecticut. During much of the war, the area around Long Island Sound became pretty dangerous, full of smugglers and criminals who took advantage of the no-man's land where neither British nor Continentals had secure control. Brewster obtained a lieutenant's commission in the Continental Army, but seems to have spent most of his time running whaling boats across Long Island Sound. Talmadge recruited his old friend as part of his spy network. He actually had recruited Brewster before Woodhull. At first, Brewster was just commissioned to keep his eyes open while sailing around Long Island Sound and report anything noteworthy. It was later that he became the courier between Woodhull and Talmadge. According to local lore, Anna Strong acted as a messenger between Woodhull and Brewster. She would hang a large black petticoat on her clothesline whenever either man needed to make contact. Then she would hang between one and six handkerchiefs on the same line to indicate which of six coves the meeting should take place. Woodhull would sometimes write out intelligence for Brewster to collect. Other times he would simply pass it along orally. Brewster would then carry the information to Connecticut to Major Talmadge. If Talmadge received written intelligence, he would rewrite it in his own handwriting in order to ensure that it could not be traced back to Woodhull. Talmadge would then brief Washington about any useful intelligence. Over time, the ring expanded. Woodhull used a number of confidential sources in New York, including his sister and her husband. He later recruited Robert Townsend, who owned a partial interest in a tavern. British officer John Graves Simcoe had taken Townsend's farm as his headquarters. As a result, Townsend had unusual access to British officers and became a prime source of intelligence, getting the codename of Culper Jr. Now, Woodhull recruited other agents as well. Most of these were ordinary people in New York who might just come across some helpful information. Many of them are only known by their code names to this day and have never been identified. Now, the British became aware that there was some spying going on around Setucket. Once, a British officer discovered Brewster hanging around on Strong's Farm. Brewster knocked the man unconscious and robbed him in order to convince the officer that he was a common criminal and not a spy. On another occasion, the British intercepted a letter from Washington to Culper but could not identify the real name of the recipient. Even so, the British did identify Brewster as a likely Continental agent probably from local Tories who knew him. They knew Brewster was working with others, but never identified Woodhull's actual role in the ring. The agents used coded messages and invisible ink to hide communications. They also used a series of dead drops to avoid meetings that might arouse suspicion. Very quickly, Washington was pleased with the level of information that he received. It was specific and accurate. Despite their efforts at secrecy, the British did come to suspect Woodhull's involvement in the ring. At one point, Colonel John Graves Simcoe of the Queen's Rangers came looking for Woodhull at his farm. Woodhull was in New York at the time, but Simcoe did rough up his father trying to get information out of him. It was after that incident that Woodhull decided to lay low for a while and his dispatches fell off. Sometimes Washington would request that the ring investigate specific questions that he had. Other times, the ring would simply report information that it happened upon. Much of the information was fairly routine, the size, location, and movements of troops. It might include buildup of supplies or other facts that indicate planning for an upcoming action. Washington was able to keep a better picture of British activity in New York as a result of this intelligence. Other times, the information was of more immediate importance. In 1780, for example, the Ring learned that the British intended to ambush the French fleet at Newport. In response to this, Washington made it appear that he was planning an offensive against New York. This forced the British to cancel the deployments of soldiers from New York to Newport so that they would be available to defend the city. On another occasion, the Ring learned that a top American officer was in discussions with the British leadership about defecting. They did not learn until too late the identity of that officer as Benedict Arnold. Late in the war, the Ring obtained a copy of the British Navy's flag signals, and that information allowed the French fleet to read the British signals and anticipate their moves, which became a critical element just before the Battle of Yorktown. The Culper Ring remained active until the end of the war. It largely remained a secret even after the war ended. Washington developed several spy rings at other places and other times, but the Culper spy ring was the largest and longest running of the war. Over the course of the war, his appreciation for the value of such intelligence grew, and he spent much more time focusing on obtaining it and also developing better experience in running an intelligence agency. Next week, we're going to return to Philadelphia, where local patriots, recovering from British occupation, look to provide some payback on the loyalists who remained behind. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week you get a menu of 35 meal options as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com slash ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution podcast after show for my 200th episode. As always, my thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, Trey Nance, George Davis, Lewis White, and Robert Hunter, and for all my other Patreon supporters at all levels. I've really come to rely on your generous support to cover my costs. It's allowed me to keep this podcast generally commercial-free so far and make it freely available to anyone who wants to listen to it, regardless of ability to pay. There are no special episodes or other content behind a paywall. Everything's available to everyone. Your donation means that I can keep everything available to everyone to enjoy this as a free download. If you do have the means, I really appreciate anyone who can support the show on Patreon for as little as $2 a month. Some people, of course, prefer a one-time gift rather than a monthly commitment and I'm grateful for those contributions via PayPal, Venmo, or other methods listed on my blog and website. This week, Paul Kallenberger provided another generous contribution. I tend to call these one-time contributions, but it's one of many that he has made via PayPal, and I thank him for that. Ryan Ramones also made a one-time contribution this month, which is beyond the monthly Patreon support that he gives me each and every month. Megan Miller also provided a generous one-time contribution. Thanks to all of you, this really helps me keep everything going and cover my expenses. As I said, this is a milestone episode, number 200. Actually, I've had more than 200 episodes if you count the special episodes, but this is the 200th regular weekly episode. I've managed to put out a new episode every single Sunday morning without fail since the launch of Episode 1 back in July of 2017. Since then, the podcast has racked up almost 2.2 million downloads in total and provides over 100,000 downloads each and every month. There are listeners in all 50 states and over 100 countries around the world. In the U.S., the podcast gets the most downloads per capita in Washington, D.C., but until D.C. becomes a state... The top state per capita is Massachusetts, followed by Vermont, New Hampshire, Delaware, and Maryland. The least popular state per capita is once again Hawaii, which is where it was back when I looked at this in episode 100. I guess Hawaiians have better things to do than listen to history podcasts. Interestingly, South Dakota was the number one state when I recorded episode 100, but has fallen to 47th in the rankings today. That's quite a swing. The U.S. accounts for over 90% of my downloads, which is not terribly surprising, given that this podcast is about the founding of the United States. Top international downloads, though, come from Canada, Australia, and the U.K. Rounding out the top five are two non-English-speaking countries, Germany and Sweden. I didn't do a per capita analysis of foreign countries, But I would note that the most populous country in the world, China, does not even show up on my list as receiving a single download. I suppose that means this podcast is banned in China. Looking forward, the podcast has almost reached the end of 1778, so we have about three more years of war before we get to Yorktown in 1781. I guess it will take another two years to cover that it will probably be a little longer before we get to the Treaty of Paris in 1783. After that, I expect to get to the events leading up to the establishment of the Constitution, although I expect we'll cover those post-war years in fewer episodes per year than we do for the war years. So, in any event, there's plenty more American Revolution to come. Now, This week, I finally covered the Culper spy ring, A decade ago, this was an extremely obscure part of the story of the American Revolution. Many books about the war did not even mention it. Then, AMC produced the show Turn, which was all about the Culper Spiring. I love the show. Yes, it does take some artistic license with the actual story. It's not a documentary. But it is reasonably faithful to the main points that we know from the real Culper Spiring. The show has become so popular that it's hard to discuss the actual events without mentioning it. If you haven't seen the show Turn, it's available now on Netflix and is also in syndication on AMC. I heartily recommend watching it. And if you've already watched it, maybe watch it again. It's really that good. One reason the show does such a good job is that the inspiration for the show came from a book about the actual spiring. That book is my recommendation this week. It's called. Washington's Spies, the Story of America's First Spy Ring by Alexander Rose. The book focuses on the Culper spy ring. It does a pretty good job uncovering what we know about the ring. Because of the nature of espionage, there's not always a good paper trail. Some of the participants in the ring were not known until the 20th century, and some are still not known for certain today. The book itself is a pretty easy read at under 300 pages, not counting notes and index. It talks about the origins of the spy ring, how it worked through the war, and what happened to some of the key figures. The author, Alexander Rose, was born in America, but spent much of his life in Australia, Canada, and Britain. He's written a number of other books about American and British history, and has also worked as a consultant for, you guessed it, the TV show Turn. He even wrote several of the episodes himself. Since Rose's book and the popularity of the TV show, there have been several more books published about the Culper spy ring, but most of these seem to be poor attempts to benefit from the popularity of the TV show. So, my recommendation is Washington's Spies by Alexander Rose. There are also Kindle and audio versions of the book as well. My online recommendation this week is... I guess a bit odd, since I'm recommending myself. A couple years ago, I was interviewed by Dan Lefebvre of the podcast Based on a True Story. The show looks at fictional works, mostly movies, and interviews people to compare how the story stacks up against true history. Dan and I talked about the TV show Turn and how it compared with the actual Culper spy ring. So, if you want to hear me talk for nearly an hour on how the TV show compares with actual history, you can check out episode 139 of the Based on a True Story podcast. If you go to basedonatruestorypodcast.com and search for TURN, the episode should come right up for you. I've also, of course, included a direct link on my website and blog. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast.